So we're in this great passage here known as the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew uh, end of chapter 7. And it's this incredible sermon that Jesus gives to really reveal the character of his kingdom and, and more so to share the characteristics of kingdom citizens. That's you and I, believers in Jesus Christ. We make up the kingdom of God. And in chapter six, we've looked so far at giving, doing your charitable deeds, and we've looked at prayer and how people were sadly doing these things in a way to receive the praise and the glory of others for what they were doing. They were taking away the glory, being focused on the Lord, taking it upon themselves. That's not the way that kingdom citizens are to be conducting themselves at all. So as we continue on here in chapter six, we're gonna look at another couple topics that are kind of along those same wavelengths. They're good things to be doing, but if they're being done in a selfish way, it robs us of the blessing of it. So the first thing we're gonna look at is fasting. It says in verse 16 again, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. So Jesus, right away again, he emphasized, draws our attention to this fact of do not be like the hypocrites, all right? Now the hypocrites were mentioned also in verses of chapter six, verses two and verse five. When he talked about charitable deeds, in verse two, when he talked about prayer in verse five, there were those that were conducting themselves to so religious leaders, loved to conduct themselves in a way where they were seeking to show their spiritual prowess by how they gave, how they prayed, and now how they fasted. But they were doing all these things for their own glory and fanfare. Now, a hypocrite, if you remember, hypocrite meant, um, oh, meant a pretender or an actor, a pretender or an actor. This is a person, remember, in this day when a, a play would be done, uh, the different characters would reveal their characters by putting on a different mask. So they'd wear a mask, and if they were gonna play a different character, then they'd put on a different mask. It's kind of like the idea of being two-faced. That's what a hypocrite was. They pretended to be something in front of people, but this isn't who they truly were. They were putting on a show they were putting on an act. They were pretenders, hypocrites, as Jesus called them. And so they would go to great lengths to make themselves look really bad when they were going through these times of fasting as though you know, it had just really taken it out of them. Oh man, they were giving everything they had just to serve the Lord. They were fasting so greatly that it was just really showing in how much they were sacrificing themselves. They would make themselves, you know, look pale or they would, um, as it says, they would uh, disfigure themselves. Is that what it says in the, in the word there? Um, I'm trying to find it right now. Is it right there? Yeah, disfigure, there it is, thank you. Now that doesn't mean they dismembered themselves. Let's not, let's not get crazy on this here. It just means that they kind of, um, you know, show themselves to be very unsightly and they would look all sad and miserable. So they're putting on this show of, oh, look at how important we are. We're giving everything up just to serve the Lord and it's taking it out of us. It's interesting how people loved to show 
their religious fervor through, you know, outward actions. Let's face it, many people feel that they're going to make it to heaven by being a good person or by doing good things. And so any chance that they have to show their goodness, well, they're going to want to take it, right? But we're seeing clearly through this chapter that God wants these things to be done simply between you and him. To be an act of service and, and, and relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. Not to be something that we do to receive the accolades of others. See, if you're doing it for the praise of men, then that's your reward. Your reward. Jesus says at the end of verse 16, I say to you, they have their reward. That's it. By doing this in an outward manner to receive praise of men, that's the reward. Enjoy it. That's it. The accolades and the praise of men, that's going to be as good as it's going to get for you in that kind of act of service. Now, we've all just recently celebrated new Super Bowl champions, right? The Chiefs bask in the accolades uh, of other people. They do the big, you know, parade and celebration. But how many people can say who the Super Bowl champions were 10 years ago or even five years ago? Don't answer if you know because you're going to ruin my illustration here. But <laughs> the idea... The idea is that, man, we, we tend to put a lot of focus on praise, but these things are fleeting, you see. This reward that people are going to get from other people is very fleeting. It's here today, gone tomorrow. You forget all those things that have happened, and people are going to forget about what you've done. So Jesus says that reward is very fleeting. They have the reward, and what he means is that they have it in full. That's as good as it's going to get, and guess what? It's temporal. That's all you're going to get from it. Now, Jesus is going to talk about, you know, when you fast as though this is going to be something that's uh, an expected, followed practice. But I would say it's become somewhat of a forgotten discipline over, you know, recent history. It's kind of gained some momentum recently with the fads of different diets. Now we have, you know, intermittent fasting and some diets and things like that. And so it's kind of become a rage. But, you know, growing up in the church, this was something that wasn't always talked about very much, kind of as a forgotten discipline. Well, let's talk about what a fast is. What is a fast? A fast is to abstain from something that the flesh desires. Biblically, a fast centered around food, which of course was the most common way to, you know, is most common way to fast today. In fact, we call it breakfast because you're breaking the fast that you just had through the night. Now, in the Bible, we see many examples of people fasting, and it was oftentimes accompanied with prayer. It was a, a, a spiritual kind of discipline that was uh, being engaged in. Like, here's some verses, Psalm 69, verse 10. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. So that was a fast connected to a time of confession before the Lord. Ezra 8, 23, so we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. That was a fast of seeking God and a, a greater determination to hear from him. And then in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. That was a fast. That was to really seek God's direction. So interestingly, God had only in the Old Testament commanded Israel to fast only one day of the year, 
On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16 records that for us. But the Israelites then began to adopt and, and uh, you know, implement other fasts, especially when they were in captivity in Babylon, and that just kind of carried on to the point where we see in the New Testament that fasting was a regular practice of Christian self-discipline. So that's a bit about what a fast is, but why should we fast? That's a good question to ask. Well, as we said earlier, fasting is a discipline that we practice when we, where we deny the, the appetites of the flesh, where we are kind of cutting ourselves off from the things that the flesh desires. Now, we know that by faith in Jesus, we are born again. We're made new, hallelujah. But the old man is quite a brute to put down, wouldn't you say? It's still there trying to have its way, trying to get back up on top where it once used to be. And the flesh is constantly pushing forward to try to appease or, or, or try to, you know, have its way. And when we take time to purposefully cut ourselves off from what the flesh wants, what happens is we begin to develop strength or spiritual strength more so that helps us in many other kinds of battles that we're going to face against our self and against the flesh. So fast allows us to develop more spiritual strength rather than constantly feeding the flesh. We know the flesh doesn't need any help to have its way. So we cut ourselves off and deny ourselves of the things of the flesh while we're taking that time to build up those spiritual muscles all the more. Now we really don't like to talk much about denying ourselves cutting ourselves off from things, especially when we have so much at our disposal. We have everything at the ready. We're, we're a, a nation that's not often in want or need. We have everything right there, and it's something that we're not familiar with, cutting ourselves off from things. But this is a spiritual practice that allows us to, again, build up spiritual strength. Now, we can fast from a number of different things. Food is the most common, no doubt. But you can fast from food. You can fast from internet, social media, TV, chores. The list really just goes on and on. You can fast from a number of, of different things that you just feel you want to cut yourself off from. But the, the important thing is that we see this time of fasting as a time where we're giving ourselves over more to the things of the Lord. Again, it's a time where we can say, instead of feeding my flesh and focusing on myself, I'm going to separate and I'm going to focus on the things of the Lord. I'm going to take some time to press in with the Lord. It's a time of, of focused devotion on the Lord and on the things of the Lord. Again, fasting is often accompanied by prayer as a way of seeking a more earnest God's desire rather than your own. So those are some things that, uh, of why we should fast. Now, Let's look at what fasting is not. Fasting is not a way to try and manipulate God to act on our behalf. Fasting does not twist God's arm to now have to answer our prayers to where we're, we're thinking, Lord, I'm not eating anything until you do what I need you to do. Sometimes as Christians, we can think that way, sadly, where if we pray hard enough, or if we pray loud enough, or if we fast and deny things, then God's eventually got to do what we're asking him to do. God does not do what we need him to do. He does what he needs to do. And that time of prayer and fasting is for us to 
hear from the Lord and to become more in line with his will and his heart. The motivation in fasting is always to simply draw closer to God and know his heart. It does not improve our standing with God on a righteousness level. It doesn't make us more likable or now that God is obligated to answer or do what we're asking him to do. Also, fasting is not a command for the Christian. Don't fast because you now feel obligated to do it. You're not. But I'm also not obligated to memorize scripture, but I see the great benefit in doing so, just as I do in fasting. There's great benefits that come in fasting. We're, we're reminded of our own weakness and our need for God in times of fasting. Like we said, we gain spiritual strength over our body's desire for food that will inevitably transfer over to having greater control over other more dangerous desires that might creep out of the flesh. And it gives us more focused time to be pressing in with our Heavenly Father. These are benefits of fasting. It's a good thing to do. It's not an obligation or a command, but it's a real blessing and benefit as we follow in these things. And Jesus says, when you're carrying out a Christian act, don't be like the hypocrites. Do it from your heart and do it before God. So looking at verse 17, it says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Notice Jesus again says, when you fast, when you fast. So this was something that was kind of a given. It's sort of an expectation, not a command, but it's kind of like an expectation that this is going to be part of a, a, a daily kind of, not a daily, but a, a Christian um, discipline that we carry out. These are the same things he said regarding charitable giving and prayer in verses two and in verse five. When you do these things, it was an expected thing. So what Jesus instructs is that when you fast, clean yourself up. Don't look like you've been lying in bed for a week in the same clothes without showering, hair all disheveled. Don't look like a monster, be normal, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Maybe that's a good word for somebody here. Just be normal. It's okay as Christians to be normal, right? Doesn't mean be like the world, but be normal, that's okay. And so as, when you're fasting, when you're doing these things, you don't have to appear all disheveled and out of place so that people take note that, oh, you must be so spiritual that you've been fasting and it's really messed you up. No, just be normal. This is between you and the Lord. Your fast is not to impress others, right? If you're trying to impress others, then you're really defeating the purpose of the fast, which is to cut you off from the flesh. And if you're trying to impress others, then you're trying to glorify your flesh. That's really an anti-fast, if anything. So don't be trying to do it for others. Be normal. Don't draw attention to yourself. We're doing this before our Heavenly Father and, and to our Heavenly Father. And when it's done that way, guess what? He will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you Openly, I love that. See, we're not seeking the compliments or the accolades of others. Like we said, those are all fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow, but 
When we do these things to our Heavenly Father, He sees it all. Be reminded that your Heavenly Father knows everything about you and He sees everything that you do. And all that we do for Him is going to be rewarded. And He's going to reward openly. And that's the reward that we want to strive after. These are treasures that are being laid up for us in heaven that will one day be realized. Don't do these things just to try to get earthly treasure out of it. It's a storing up treasures in heaven. You know, the, if any believers living their best life now, well, that's a very sad reality because each of us as followers of Christ should be living in a way where when we join Jesus in eternity, that's when life is fully going to be realized. And it'll be realized as so much better than anything that we have experienced in this world, especially when we have treasures stored up in heaven. That's where the next few verses are gonna address for us here. Now, in Matthew chapter six, uh, verse 19 to 24, Jesus deals with the subject of our priorities, really what we treasure. And he does so by addressing three things. He addresses the heart. He does that in verses 19 to 21. He addresses the soul. Does that in verses 22 to 23. And then he addresses the heart. Oh, sorry. Let's back that up. Addresses the will in verse 24. Our Lord wants us to have the right treasure, our heart, the right devotion from our soul, and the right master, our will. So he says in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Let me stop right there. Now, that for some might be very troubling verses, though you're reading like, oh, hold on a second. Does this mean that I can't have a bank account with money in it? Am I not allowed to prepare for retirement or have a bit of a, a rainy day fund set aside? Does it mean I'm not, this isn't good to do? No, these things are not prohibited at all. They're very much permissible. In fact, in Proverbs, we read a couple times about the, the ant and how it's commended for preparing its food in, in the summertime to prepare for what lies ahead. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the one uh, who does not provide for his own household is seen as worse than an unbeliever. So what Jesus is saying is that we're not to have a, a selfish preoccupation with these things. That's why he says, do not lay up for yourselves. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't let this be something that you begin to be consumed with for your own benefit and gratification. Don't be looking to center your life around the things of this world. First of all, when we're preoccupied with the treasure of this world, what happens? We become more attached to this world. And this world, thank the Lord, is not our home. Aren't you glad for that? This world is not our home. This is not what we're living for. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. 
Set your mind on things above. So when we have a preoccupation with the things of this world, especially the treasures of this earth, then we become much more attached to this world. Secondly, the treasures of this world don't last, right? They're temporal. They can get stolen or they fall prey to the elements of this world and they're ruined, rust destroys it. Thieves break in and steal, it says. Our worldly wealth is really on a roller coaster. There's no guarantees, is there? In what we invest in, where we store our money, there's no guarantees. You, you in fact, can't even go into your own bank to withdraw money from your account and, and be able to receive it all. They're like, oh, we don't have that kind of money around here. And you're like, you're a bank, aren't you? What do you mean you don't have that kind of money around here? You can't even get money out of your bank account anymore these days. So there's no guarantees, you see, with our worldly wealth. Jesus, though, has something far better for us. Look at what he says in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not, cannot break in and steal it. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. See, we can't keep all that we try to accumulate here on earth, but we can be sending on that treasure ahead of us and storing it up in heaven where it lasts. Treasures in heaven are those things that have eternal reward, things that can never get stolen or ruined. They're safe and they're secure and they're to be enjoyed throughout eternity. So what are some of those treasures in heaven? How do we store up treasures in heaven? Well, Sermon on the Mount has given us a bit of an idea already. When it's said in chapter five or seven to 12, that those that suffer persecution for his sake, greatest their reward. We talked about loving your enemies, you're rewarded. Giving generously to others, you're rewarded. Praying with sincerity brings with it a reward. Fasting, we see now, brings with it a reward. Essentially, anything that we do to the glory of God and to the service of our Lord is storing up treasures in heaven. It's paying dividends in eternity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul speaks about the judgment seat for believers that we're all going to stand before and give an account for what we've done in this life. Now, that's not under salvation. The believer does not stand before a judgment seat to see if we make it into heaven or not. No, that judgment has already been answered through Jesus Christ on the cross. We're saved by grace through faith in him. But that judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is, is really translated as, as the Bema seat, which was the place of rewards that even the athletes in the games that they um, participate in would stand and to receive their prizes for how they competed. It's a place of prizes, a place of rewards. This is what Jesus is talking about. In the Mount, you're gonna be rewarded but we're rewarded based on how we live this life for Jesus, what we've done for him, what has eternal value. Now in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, Paul also talks about how many of those things that we've done are gonna be burned up because they've been done unto ourselves. Some of these Pharisees that are walking around making themselves look all, you know, just grossed out because they've been fasting, well, those are works that are gonna be burned up because they were doing that for themselves. They were receiving the praise of man. They weren't doing it unto the Lord. 
But all that we've done for the Lord and for the Lord is going to be rewarded in heaven, paying dividends for eternity. So, are you living for eternal pursuits and treasures? Or are you fixated on earthly treasures? Here's the thing that we need to know about this. As he says at the end of verse 21, or in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that for a moment. What you value, you will seek. What you treasure, you will follow after. What is your treasure today? What are you valuing of great worth in your life today? If it's things of an earthly nature, then your heart is gonna be drawn after that. That's where your focus and your preoccupation is gonna reside. A life will be directed by what it deems most important. A life will be directed by what it deems most important. What is that for you? These are questions we need to come to terms with today. What's most important in my life? What am I valuing? I pray that Jesus holds that place of greatest value and worth in your life. And he should. Why? Because he died for you. He forgave you of your sins. He renewed a right relationship between you and your heavenly father. And he's freely given us eternal life simply through faith in him, all by his grace. He is our greatest treasure. He's of greater worth than anything else that we could ever set our eyes on in this world. Of the greatest treasure in this earth, Jesus is far greater. May that be evident by a heart that is his and living for eternity. It's a poor trade when we give up the eternal for the temporal. It's a poor trade and many have done that. Well, Jesus now gives a bit of an illustration of this, which at first reading sounds a little strange, maybe almost new agey, but let's make some sense of this. He says in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. So essentially says the eye is a lamp. It lights up everything inside. It's through your eye and the things that you see that light comes in, gets into the body. And if the eye is good and looking at the right things, then what's inside is going to be good and healthy. Your whole body is going to be full of light. If what you're focused on this life is a good report, if it's the things of God, the things that glorify God, then it's going to add greater health and blessing to your life. Now that word for good, when Jesus says, therefore your eye is good, in the King James Version, it's translated as single. Single, which essentially is saying that if you have a single, a single eye, a singular focus, then everything that is coming in is going to be good. Because what we're looking at is earthly treasures and treasures in heaven. What is your eye on? Where's your vision? What is your focus? 
and with a singular vision on the things of the Lord, then you're going to be growing in health and light. Everything about you is going to be blessed. But on the flip side, verse 23, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, a, a bad eye can mean that you have like double vision. That you're trying to look at both things, you're trying to balance these things out. You have divided loyalties. You're looking at treasures in heaven, but you're trying to still be occupied with the, the wealth of this world. And if that be the case, then Jesus says the light is drowned out by the darkness and how great is that darkness. It overrides it all. You can't have, when it comes to our life in Christ, you can't have this compromising view. You can't have a double vision. You can't be trying to attain this and yet holding on to that. You have the choice between two treasures and two visions, which ultimately comes down to your choice between two masters. That's what Jesus says here in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. See, we can have a lot of interests that we enjoy and follow. But we're not talking about just following an interest here. We're talking about wholehearted devotion. That's what's required by these two masters. Wholehearted devotion. You'll either be ruled by God or you'll be ruled by mammon. Now let's talk about what is implied by mammon. Mammon came from a Hebrew verb meaning to entrust or to place in someone's keeping. This is from Boyce's commentary. It says, The noun therefore referred to the wealth one entrusted to another for safekeeping. Yet as time went by, the meaning of mammon shifted from the passive sense of that which is entrusted to the active sense of that which one trusts. And when that happened, the word originally spelled with a small m came to be spelled with a capital M as designating a god. This word mammon is an Aramaic uh, word which speaks of, of wealth or money, which to many becomes their god. And Jesus says, you can't have it both ways. You're either going to serve God and not be so worried and consumed by money or this is going to captivate your heart and you're going to serve that rather than God. But as the wise philosopher Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to choose who you're going to serve. It can't be both God and money. We like to think we can have healthy compromise, but one master will always prevail. Each demands single-minded devotion, a singular visionary focus and devotion. To give anything less is to provide no service at all. Wholehearted devotion. It's been said, Christ will put up with many things in the human heart, but there's one thing he won't put up with, and that's second place. That throne in our heart is a seat of one. And Jesus is either on it or he's not. Doesn't settle for second place. 
So like Joshua, who said, choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. And like Elijah, who said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, then follow him. But you need to choose. Jesus has kind of drawn the line in the sand. And the question is, what are you living for? What are you treasuring? What are you valuing? Because you can't have it on both sides. You need to choose. We all have that choice to make. Have you made that choice? Who are you serving today? And if you're living with a greater pursuit and desire for things other than God, I can let you know that those things will never satisfy. Those things will never pay off. Matthew 16, 26 says, for what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Choose today the only one that provides life, both the contented and peaceable life of today and the blessing of eternal life with him forever and ever. Choose this day whom you'll serve and serve him with a wholehearted devotion. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And he's not calling us to that, to make life difficult or hard or to test us. He's saying, man, this is the path that's gonna lead to your greatest blessing and enjoyment. It's not gonna be found in anywhere else. It's found in him alone. Treasure him, value him. May he be our ultimate pursuit in all that we do. Cut off those things that get in the way and follow him. Let's pray. Would everybody just close your eyes? And I'm going to ask this question to anybody here today or to anybody watching online. Have you chosen to give your heart to Jesus, to live for him, and for him to be your Lord and Savior? Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my hardest. I'm trying to be a good person. I, I, I want to stop you right there and say, none of those things are going to help us get right with God. We can't do it on our own. That's why Jesus came to this world, became one of us, and he went to the cross to die, and in doing so, paid the penalty for your sin. And he rose again so that he could secure eternal life for you, for all that simply put their trust in him and not in our own self. And he's calling us to simply receive him and that free gift of eternal life and allow him to be the Lord of your life. You don't have to do anything to receive that. You just need to receive it freely. And you can pray a simple prayer like this. And if you are listening to this message and you want to be right with God and know that you have eternal life, you want to choose today to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and to follow him, just pray a simple prayer like this in your own heart. Heavenly Father, I confess I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before you with no hope on my own to be right with you. But thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die in my place. 
to take my sins upon himself. And I ask you to forgive me and to make me new. And thank you that because of Jesus' resurrection, I can have the promise of eternal life. Jesus, come and be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. I choose you today. Amen. And if you prayed that from your heart, the Bible says you become a child of God, a new creation. Everything that was once in your past is done away with, and you're now a new creation. Receive that today. And if you prayed that today, would you come and let me know or those praying here, if you're watching online, send us an email to the church because we would love to share more with you and see you continue to be blessed in this new life in Jesus Christ.